0: Thank you for listening to this Miller Time Media podcast. This interview took place during our Miller Time Live radio program. For information on the program, you can visit our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash millertimeradio. You can also find us on any of your favorite podcasting platforms by searching Miller Time Media. If you do not find us on your favorite podcast platform, not to fear, just send us an email and we'll get it done for you, Outlook.com. Thank you and enjoy. It's time for Reading Matters with Sue Grant Marshall on Hits ZA. Hi there, everyone. It's Sue Grant Marshall, Reading Matters, and I have got four or five books. We'll see how the time goes to get through in this Reading Matters today. The first person I'm going to talk about is Tsiti Dangaremgwa. I don't know if I've got her name right, pronunciation. Uh, she is a, an award-winning Zimbabwean author. I don't know if you follow the Booker Prize winners, shortlists, etc., etc. South Africa has produced at least two that I know of, Booker Prize winners. After the Nobel Literature Prize, it is the Prize to win and our own Nadine Gordimer, she has won it. Our own, inverted commas, J.M. see, even though he's living in Australia, we still like to call him. Well, I think he wrote uh, most of his books here in South Africa, in Cape Town, where he lived for most of his life. And um, he won it twice. And now the person that I'm talking about here, Tsitsi Dangaremgwa, she wrote a book called Nervous Conditions, about eight or ten years ago, and she was highly, highly praised for that, uh, for that book. And um, in fact, uh, she wrote this 30 years ago. I just see now in my notes here, she wrote this book 30 years before the release of this long-listed book I've got in front of me, this mournable body m-o-u-r like you're in mourning this mournable body and my goodness what a time for this the the um, long listing of this book to have been um, announced because uh, she was arrested I think it was on Friday last week in Zimbabwe she had said that she was going to Uh, speak out about what was going on in Zimbabwe. She was released on bail, in case you're having a heart attack. After her arrest, um, other people were detained. I'm not sure if they were released or not. Um, But in any case, all of them were ordered to return to court on September the 18th. Tsitsi was charged with incitement to commit violence and breaching anti-coronavirus health regulations after staging a two-woman demonstration in the capital on Friday, the day of planned protests against corruption and a deepening economic crisis. She was carrying placards calling for reforms, In Zimbabwe and the release of Hopewell Chinono, a prominent journalist, arrested last week under a government crackdown. Friends, she wrote in a tweet, did here is a principle. If you want your suffering to end, you have to act. Action comes from hope. This, she wrote, this principle of faith and action... um, is something that she has done because she says you can't just simply hope you have to act so that's what she did and for her hmm, i won't say sins but for her brave action she was arrested she was um protesting with one person next to her another woman and um yeah my goodness! well, anyhow, let me tell you about this book now. this mournable body has um it's a novel, and you can't miss it in the bookshops mm-hmm. because it's got a cover with a woman's feet in a you know in a in a pair of interesting looking shoes and the book is about tam budzai and Okay, let me read you what um, A. Agony Barrett wrote about it. A haunting evocation of the nature of small defeats. Only a writer steeped in Zimbabwean life with her unflinching gaze fixed on the individual and with a social vision that Brooks no sentimentality, could have given us the fraught heroine of the starkly written novel. Titi proved yet again that hers is a maverick voice. So what's the story about? It's when Tambudzai first set out to rebuild the financial and social status she spent her youth working for. She couldn't have known that every move she made would bring her one step closer to sacrificing the dignity of her family and of her community. Her choices seem innocuous. She moves from house... um, Uh, She moves from a rundown youth hostel in downtown Harare to a widow's boarding house. She finds work first as a biology teacher and then in, well, I don't think it's opportunistic, but anyway, that's what, you know, they've written here, an opportunistic field of ecotourism. But when a long overdue homecoming culminates in a humiliating spectacle, Tambudzai is forced to consider whether it was her circumstances or her decisions that brought her to a breaking point. So someone called Madeleine Tien, T-H-I-E-N, says that when Tsitsi began 30 years ago with her masterpiece, Nervous Conditions, She um, reached a provocative and brilliant height. This mournable body demands answers from all who have suffered and survived the violence of the 21st century only to find history and injustice, cruelty and rebellion woven into their souls. If all the doors are barred, can we still find our way free? So that's the uh, center, the yes the the core of this book it's beautifully written um she's got a a beautiful um um, descriptive pieces in it and yet wonderful wonderful dialogue which uh, makes the book extremely lively and 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 yeah compelling Um, I got a copy of it with the end snipped off. And it said advanced reading copy. There's an error on the spine. And so it is. They spelt mournable with an extra E. So I'm very proud of having this book because I'm, I'm sure there are not too many that have that printed on the front of it. So what a brave, brave woman is Titi. And we wish her all the best. We hope that she is, yeah, is, well, maybe by September. I mean, who knows? Apparently, the president of Zimbabwe has been using coronavirus as an excuse to crack down, saying people can't gather, they can't get together. Then they're charged with being riotous and all the rest of it. In fact, Emerson Mnangagwa had said the day before the arrest that anyone attending the protests um, would only have themselves to blame. And he denounced the planned rallies as an insurrection to overthrow our democratically elected government. Well, on Friday, Amnesty International said the brutal assault on political activists and human rights defenders who've had the courage to call out alleged corruption and demand accountability from their government is intensifying. So how incredible to have a long-listed, well, you know, long, short, what does it matter, Um, Booker Prize nominee arrested in Zimbabwe. I mean, did they even know what they were doing there is going to be a continuing outcry about uh, Titi's arrest so then you might recall last week i spoke about a hundred speeches that changed the world and today i've got a hundred books that changed the world it's a beautiful hard hard copy it's by scott christiansen and colin salter scott was an award when he's dead now was an award-winning author and investigative reporter and uh, colin salter is a history and science writer so here we go now a hundred books what how would you begin i love it that when you open this book the covers of some of the hundred, because there's no way they're going to get a hundred covers when you open this glossy, gorgeous, glossy book. So I wonder what ones you would have chosen. Perhaps you'd like to make out a list of of your top 20 in your long or short life. So they range from To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee, to the Karma Sutra of Vatsanyana, to... Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management and All Quiet on the Western Front. That's by Erich Maria Remarque. And, and that, of course, was, uh, was it Second or First World War? Anyway, um, and then Dr. Zeus's oh, I can remember reading those to my daughter, and I'm not surprised that they've chosen The Cat in the Hat as one of the top 100 then you know who I love is Gabriel Garcia Marquez and his book, 100 Years of Solitude. Well, he wrote many books, but that's the one they've plucked to um, put. Then, of course, Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl. So let's, um, I'm turning to the first um, book. No, not yet. I'm going to tell you a bit more generally. Do you know that the oldest printed Texts were stamped into clay while it was still wet, then baked into permanence. As handwriting developed, it became easier to copy text out onto sheets of papyrus, of vellum, or paper. But it would still take a team of monks several years to produce a single, beautifully illustrated manuscript copy of the Bible. So the world was truly changed with the invention of printing. And here we are during the lockdown. I'm deviating slightly um, because we're living in a time, the end of an era where printing is going out of fashion, out of style as digital takes over. So back to... This 100 books that changed the world. The Bible was the first book to be printed with movable type in the 1450s. And that, of course, was because of the famous Gutenberg Press. And it took the Gutenberg Press three years to print roughly 100 180 copies of the Bible. But it was significantly faster than a team of monks. So now, how do you, what they've done in this book is in this hundred top books is kind of divided uh, the books into different topics. You get science. You get um, let's just see, and into that goes Charles Darwin, Darwin's on the Origin of Species, Albert Einstein's Relativity, and um, so printing had the same world-shrinking impact as the development of the internet 500 years later. Nowadays, we can share information or ask questions with friends and colleagues on the other side of the world. (laughs) Books have been particularly instrumental in changing the attitude of men towards women and of women towards themselves. Thomas Paine's 1791 political thesis, The Rights of Man, was followed a year later by Mary Wallenstincroft's A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, an Early Feminist Milestone. So in this book... The 100 the books, top books. The selection also includes Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex and Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. Books don't have to contain big ideas to change their worlds. The authors write. Some books just want to help you with everyday life at work and at home. So they've included The Domestic Bible, Mrs. Beaton's book of household management that I mentioned earlier. And it transformed the lives of middle-class women in the 19th century. And so did Elizabeth David's A Book of Mediterranean Food. I must say, I'm mad about Mediterranean food. It's so healthy. Then Dale Carnegie's Business Advice from 1936. Can you believe he wrote it so long ago? And it still teaches us how to win friends and influence people. The Kama Sutra And guess when that was written, 400 BC, well, between 400 BC and AD 200. And then the Kinsey reports, who could ever forget those, even if you you weren't around, which you wouldn't have been, most of you. Um, The reports came out between 1948 and 1953 on sexual behavior. And there's a thousand years, two thousand years between the Kama Sutra and the McKinsey reports. So um, the Kama Sutra, everyone who hasn't read it knows it as an illustrated Indian tutorial of exotic sexual intercourse techniques. But there's far more to it than that. Although the guidance is offered from the vantage point in this book, The Karma Sutra, of a worldly but virtuous male, it also pertains to women, with tips that cover virtually every aspect of living, from youth through courtship, romance, sex and marriage. It tells males and females what to wear, what to eat, with whom to socialize, and how to act in order to achieve the power that will attract Others. So isn't that fascinating? So yes, of course, it, there is a lot about sex. It endorses sexual relations on grounds of pleasure, not just procreation. And it allows that females, listen to this, can also achieve orgasm. R- given that it was written so long ago in a culture with deeply misogynist traditions, the Karma Sutra's philosophy and gender relations seems markably progressive. Right, the authors. Now I'm flipping because I've made all these marks. Well, there's Dante's The Divine um, Comedy. I better flip faster. Shakespeare's First Folio. So his first... um, book then oh I'm flipping flipping because I'm going to be running out of time at this rate oh well let's keep it with sex because Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence do you know it was the last book that D.H. Lawrence wrote I had no idea I was at school when this um, book came out and I can remember the I was a boarder up here in Joburg at St. Mary's School for Girls. And, you know, I can remember some of the day girls coming in with this book that they smuggled in, in their, well, I won't say biology, in their history or maybe even geography book. And it was with the parts in it which were full of sex. And in fact, the authors of um, this book, which I'll quickly tell you again, it's a hundred books that changed the world. And it is published by, oh, let me just see who it's published by. Batsford, B-A-T-S-F-O-R-D. And it was published recently in the UK by Batsford. And oh, I, I think it's just the most fabulous book. I'm stroking it. Gorgeous, glossy with full page pictures of some of the book covers and in this instance lady chatley's lover the one that most of us have well not no those of us who have it is the famous famous penguin books um cover with um the title of course dh lawrence underneath gosh can you believe it that it says on the cover this picture of the cover complete and unexpurgated and it cost three shillings and six pence back in the day and then what they have here is the expurgated one, beautiful, it takes up a whole page, it's hard cover and it says the privately printed first edition from 1928 was published in Florence in Italy the first uncensored edition, the one I've just told you about published by Penguin in 1960 became the subject of a watershed obscenity trial that turned it into an overnight bestseller. If you write a book that you want to be a bestseller, (laughs) have a court case about it. Penguin's second edition in 1961 included a note from the publisher, and this is the comment, this is the note, in inverted commas, For having published this book, Penguin Books was prosecuted under the Obscene Publications Act of 1959 at the Old Bailey in London, and the trial took from the 20th of October to the 2nd of November. This edition is therefore dedicated, so that's the second edition, to the 12 jurors made up of three women and nine men who returned a verdict of not guilty of obscenity, that's Penguin not being guilty, who returned that not guilty verdict and made thus D.H. Lawrence's last novel available for the first time to the public in uh, the United Kingdom and then, of course, out here too. So um, what is it so – why is it so amazing? Well, for all the reasons I've just said, and basically it's a story about a lady who falls in love with the gardener and how they meet And Mellors is the name of the gardener, M-E-L-L-O-R-S. Will we ever forget Mellors? And um, anyway, I'm not going to tell you the end of the story in case you never read it, which which if you haven't, you've got a real treat in store. And I'm sure it's out there on the Internet if it's no longer available in print anywhere. Then a book which is extraordinary, and it had a completely plain cover when it was published initially, hardcover, all quiet on the Western Front. And it's a brutal account of the effect on of war on young soldiers at the front. It sold more than 50 million copies since its publication, but it was one of the first books declared decadent by the Nazis and burned By the Nazis in public bonfires in 1933. So the book is by German-born Erich Maria Remarque and he enlisted in the army and was posted to the Western Front in northern France. Much of the book is autobiographical and certainly based on first-hand experiences It's narrated by its central character, Paul Baumar, who enlists with several of his classmates at the age of 19. So, as as we've said, as I've said, it was in the First World War on the Western Front, that terrible, terrible First World War, um, you know, where they... Marched forward a few steps and then had to march back again. So it's Sue Grant Marshall, Reading Matters, and I'm talking about various books. And the one I'm talking about now, in case you've just tuned in, is "A 100 Books That Changed the World by Scott Christensen and Colin Salter. So now another one of the many books, the 100, is Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged... Bird sings. Oh, such an incredible, incredible book. They've got a cover here, full page colour, and it's the original Random House hardback edition. And then opposite is the um, Bantam Press paperback, subtitled The Moving and Beautiful Autobiography of a Talented Black Woman. So what's the woman? What's the um, book about? It's about rejection and determination, prejudice and triumph. It, the first of seven volumes of Maya Angelou's autobiography, takes her from infancy to young motherhood. Its frank retelling of incidents of racism and abuse have made it an essential element of many reading books, and many a reading list, but I've also seen it banned from others. Can you imagine? So, you know, in the 1960s, as maybe all of you know, and some of you know, Maya Angelou was a successful poet and playwright and an active campaigner for civil rights for African-Americans. Oh, what's changed? Oh, my goodness. She'd worked with both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., I wonder if any of you saw, just to interrupt myself there, the uh, funeral service of um, John Lewis, who um, and and Barack Obama giving the eulogy at it. It was so moving, and he called on this is Barack Obama on minorities not to be frightened by all the threats of. Polling booths not opening and being moved. You know, the election is in November. And this is references to Donald Trump saying, you know, he might get the election moved. I believe that his own party, the Republicans, voted against that. So what had I said? Oh, that she'd worked with, this is Maya Angelou, she'd worked with both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. only to see both of them assassinated. And um, both deaths... Resulted in the, you know, Maya Angelou becoming extremely depressed. And it was in an attempt to lift her out of this depression that her friend, James Baldwin, suggested she write a literary autobiography. One approached with the sensibilities of a novelist rather than simply a chronological narration of history. And the result is, was, I know why the caged bird Sings. It took that title from a verse by the poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Dunbar and was written with a poet's feel for the power of words. It's one of the book's themes, The Redemptive Power of Poetry and Drama, and that was from the young Maya Angelou's Life. Oh, her writing is pure poetry. So if you haven't read that, why don't you um, do that? Now, let me look at my time here. <clears throat> then we have another one, which I found absolutely fascinating. It's Ways of Seeing by John Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R, published in 1972. It's a pivotal work of art criticism and feminism. He made a connection between the context in which we view art and the way in which it is made and changed the way we look at paintings, especially paintings depicting women. So John Berger was an art teacher, an artist, an art critic, a novelist, oh my goodness, (laughs) a playwright, essayist and poet. So I think this is a book that I'm going to, I haven't read it. Um, But what he's uh, said there, written, is seeing comes before words. The child looks and recognizes before it can speak. But there's also another sense in which seeing comes before words. It is seeing which establishes our place in the surrounding world. We explain that world with words, but words can never undo the fact that we're surrounded by it. The world, you know, the relation between what we see and what we know is never settled. And the, surre- the surrealist painter, Magritte commented on this always present gap between words and seeing in a painting called The Key of Dreams. It's fascinating. Here's the painting, and it's got the door, and there's a horse, the wind, there's a clock. The bird, and there's a jar. The valise, which is French for suitcase, and there is indeed the suitcase. So there, oh, I mean, you know, when you, when you get this book, as I'm sure you're all going to rush out and get <laughs> the hundred books that changed the world, um, you'll want to read the hundred books. Oh, well, of course, we can't, you know. Um, then, of course, one of the um, series of books that has changed the world is Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling's books because it's the book that got children reading again. You know, I can remember when the first book hit the bookshelves and then all the excitement and in London children and their parents queuing round the bookshops so they could be there at midnight when the second and the third and the fourth etc. books <clears throat> were published. So, I never knew that J.K. Rowling actually is Joanne Rowling. She changed her name to J.K. because her publishers thought that boys preferred male authors. To date, some 400 million boys, girls and grown-up men and women have bought copies of the book and its six sequels. We've been to the movies. Isn't that incredible? Then I'm not going to talk much about Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, but um, that's a very important book. And then I'm going to end off uh, not reading matters. I've got a couple more books if I'm going to get into them, if time allows me. Um, And it's the famous Naomi Klein and her book, This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate. So in a world, this book, this what's it about? What what it is about, in a world whose economic model is infinite consumption of finite resources, Naomi Klein claims that profit has taken precedence over survival. The book, This Changes Everything, is an urgent rallying call for collective action on the environment and a recalibration of our aspirations. Well, isn't that interesting? Because that was published back in 1914, and wow, is that Mm timious. It couldn't be more timious. Britain last week had the hottest day of... I think that it's ever recorded or something unbelievable. Here we are supposed to be still in winter and we're having summer temperatures. Floods are washing the world into the sea. So that was extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. It's Sue Grant Marshall reading letters on. I'm now going to talk about... which one shall I talk about next oh all these divine books I'm going to tell you quickly I'm sure a fair number of you have read books by Kazuo Ishiguro he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature and um, his latest book Clara and the Sun is going to be published next year he was born in Nagasaki in Japan, was Kazuo Ishiguro, what was his Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go. They've both been, um, films have been made of, um, of those books and over a million copies of each book has been, have been um, sold. Anyway, so this is great, exciting news that Clara, K-L-A-R-A, and The Sun is going to come out next year. And it tells the story of Clara, an artificial friend, AI, with outstanding observational qualities, who, from her place in a store, watches carefully the behavior of those who come into browse and of those who pass in the street outside. She remains hopeful, does this artificial Clara, that a customer will soon choose her. But when the possibility emerges that her circumstances may change forever, (laughs) Clara is warned not to invest too much in the promises of humans. So there you go. Isn't it absolutely fantastic? Fantastic, that, because, you know, I would imagine that the odd person who's won the Nobel Prize in Literature would decide he's not going to write anymore. But he is, and he has, and Clara and the Sun will be out next year. Jonathan Ball is going to handle it in South Africa. So now I'm going to talk about... What I think is an extraordinary um, book. It's called "Remembering Great Apes." And as Jane Goodall, oh no, let me just remind you. If you did not, um, if you do not remember, I'm just quickly getting into my computer here because I called up a piece that I heard um, just briefly on the news at the weekend about um a gorilla that was um shot murdered you know i think gorillas are so like us and uh, chimpanzees and etc cetera, etc cetera, that um i tend to think of them as people and in fact the opening picture in this book um is 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 it's it's quite horrific actually it's of a silverback gorilla I'm just, oh, this book is so heavy. Uh, it's, it's a huge, square, coffee-top, glossy book, and it is, it's published by H.R.H. Now, where is that piece of paper that I had? Oh, here it is, H.P.H. Publishing. They only publish the most extraordinary, beautiful books and they're usually about wildlife or something to do with being out in the wilds like the Kruger National Park. They've published a beautiful book on that. So this one, Remembering Great Apes. um, Yeah, what was I turning to? I was going to tell you that um, a, a silverback gorilla, was um killed murdered up in um uganda and well i'll come to that later when i find it let me tell you more about this book so it is they publish these books so that um people would buy them and all the funds go towards wildlife and preserving it the um now who is it who wrote this this is here Margot Raggett, she's the founder of Remembering Wildlife, they've got a website www.rememberingwildlife.com and she writes that she's haunted by the image by Brent Sturton this is a, a year ago, the current wildlife photographer of the year and it depicts a murdered gorilla like the one that was killed a couple of weeks ago Um, strapped to a makeshift bamboo stretcher. He was a victim of a shocking revenge killing by charcoal barons. The juxtaposition of the silverback's prone human-like body surrounded by the somber faces of local people who look like funeral goers is so emotive that it both crushes me, writes Margot, and also fires a fury in my belly once again. I must say, it is just the most haunting picture because there it is with these villages around it and they do look very sad and fun- funereal. And and so the woman who has started this series of remembering remembering wildlife um and um she says that she I, like many others, enjoy the escapism of fantasizing about a world, fantasizing about a world where animals roam free in beautiful landscapes—a utopia that could soothe our souls. If only we could be there too. Indeed, she says this book series is largely about sharing images, and by doing so, we've raised large amounts for conservation. For which she says I am immensely. Grateful, And then Jane Goodall, let me just flip to where um, she's written um, in this book. Here we go. She says, you know, you all know, I'm sure, who, who Jane, Jane Goodall is. I mean, she started uh, observing chimpanzees decades ago, and her name has come to be completely... Um, Simultane, uh, you know, it's you, you just say Jane Goodall when you think of chimpanzees and monkeys and gorillas and bonobos and orangutans. And um, so what uh, she says here is, this is a fantastic book. These iconic photographs of these animals living wild and free in their forest homes bring us face to face with our closest relatives. And these are photographs captured by some of the very best wildlife photographers of our times. It's impossible to look at these pictures without feeling empathy for the individuals depicted, the intelligence in their eyes, the tenderness of a mother's interactions with her infant, with her infant, the confident stance of an adult male, the joyful exuberance of childhood. Oh my. Goodness you can just tell can't you how much she absolutely loves these um, animals so I'll just quickly flip through the book. The images are incredible. There is a chimpanzee hanging from a branch with her little baby chimpanzee hanging from her and there is such love and such joy in this little chimpanzee's face big blue eyes i must tell you big blue eyes who could ever shoot oh a little chimpanzee like this i i I just i don't know um i'm at a loss for words yes and then so these taking you through these gorgeous glossy papers Um, with the pictures of these great apes in the most beautiful settings of course most of them are jungle because that's where they live around the world obviously you wouldn't find them in the Sahara and the opening um, very opening page before you get to that horrific one of the um, silverback gorilla is one of a gorilla looking up at um, I think it must be Mount Kilimanjaro but the they're 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 um pale blue and misty and just so gorgeous now there's a story behind the actual book um publishing um because it's been published in South Africa by h p h publishing as I mentioned before, and the story about that is heinrich um who is the publisher here, started his career as a civil engineer. But his passion was always photography. He's been a photographer professional for over 20 years and he's won all kinds of awards. So in 1998, Heinrich, together with his parents, Philip and Ingrid, established a photography business where he was able to learn all about photography and then he realized the best way. To share his and other like-minded photographers' work was to become a publisher himself. So, in 2001, he established HPH Publishing. His first books were on the Tsitsikama National Park and Addo Elephant Park and he's also done one i made a note of it somewhere oh yes khalghadi self drive which i'm hoping to get that book he's done kruger self drive khalghadi because you know that's into that's botswana he's done vanishing kings lions of the namib desert and he's done game drive mammals of southern africa and they really are do you know his attention to detail and the finest quality is so extraordinary that during the entire printing process, Heinrich visits printers where he personally approves every proof (laughs) and that's why you get these extraordinary books I've just mentioned because of Heinrich's, of HPH Publishing has um, devoted to these books. This one uh, remembering great apes, I don't know how much the others cost, this one will cost you about 65 US dollars and about 700, 800 rands in South Africa, depending on where you buy it. Right, and now, lastly, I am going to um, talk about... <coughs> Oh, dear, I've got to clear my throat. Um, R.W. Johnson's uh, book, Foreign Native now i have never looked on rw johnson with great affection he's pretty right wing i'm not but this book i absolutely i so enjoyed reading it it's it's fascinating it's a paperback book it's called foreign native and it is published by jonathan ball again R. W. Johnson has written something like, I don't know, 15 books here. A couple he wrote with Lawrence Schlemmer. I don't know if that name rings a bell with you. He was an incredible um, researcher. And um, what R. W. Johnson has done is say emphatically up front that he has not written this as an autobiography. But having said that, the book does follow his life and times. And I must tell you, which I, 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 I didn't know until I got this book, I must say, that um, he's the only South African Rhodes scholar resident abroad because he he went to Oxford, obviously. he was an emeritus fellow of Magdalen College in Oxford, and he was in South Africa. He came out here when he was a little boy with his parents to Durban, and he's the only. As they say, South African Rhodes got a resident abroad to return to live in South Africa after the end of apartheid. If you read the book, you'll discover, as I did, that actually he got out of South Africa just ahead of being apprehended, arrested, whatever you want. He was being spied on by the apartheid uh, security police. He was friends with many um, South African activists who the security police, one by one, pulled into their horrid net and... um, So he does kind of follow a bit of his uh, chronological life with the events that happened during that life. But in this book, he looks back with affection and humor on his life here in Africa because he went to Uganda and Guinea and all kinds of other places um, during his work at Oxford. So you know what I found absolutely incredible? And I could relate to this. Let me just look for this now is um oh yes he went to northland northlands boys high school in durban and uh, he says it was populated as he puts it with boys a good head taller than anything i was used to everyone was very tanned he went from an english winter to a south african summer it was a beach culture And the rugby season had commenced, but I, with my lily-white skin, kept getting sunburnt while playing, and the rugby pitch was so hard that it took a hammer to drive a nail into it. Getting tackled on that was like being tackled on concrete. And he had been at a school in uh, 1957, how do you pronounce this, at St. Anselm's, a Catholic school in Birkenhead, England. That had, on any reckoning, been bad enough. The Christian brothers were brutal, wielding huge leather straps with whalebone centers against those in their charge. Well, at Mafeking Convent, um, yeah, we, we were caned by the nuns anyway. He felt that being at this Northlands boy's school, it all felt completely wrong. In addition, I had a strong Merseyside accent, which was mercilessly mocked, and my bright red hair led to the persecution that redheads have to treat as normal. On Merseyside, I would not stuck out so much. From my earliest days, I'd been told that redheads had violent tempers. Everyone wanted to test this hypothesis, he says, by trying every provocation imaginable. It was vital to maintain an icy calm, whatever the circumstances. I got a lot of practice at that, he says. Well, that's because he was so often, yeah, nearly caught by the security police. And he ends the book... um, telling funny stories from, oh, he's got stories about all sorts of people in this book, from Helen Sussman to Mandela. In fact, do you know that on page 129 in this book, and he is quoting um, R.W. Uh, Johnson, Anthony Sampson's biography of Mandela. And this is now about the Rivonia accused of the Rivonia trial, and Anthony Sampson, I never read that, I read Long Walk to Freedom and various other books on Mandela, including one by my friend Mike Nicol. Anyway, there was substantial support for Mandela and the Rivonia accused in Britain, even in the Conservative Party, and Sir Alec Douglas Hume, the Foreign Secretary, offered to send a private message to Favut about the trial, because what was happening was that, behind the scenes, Britain and the USA were still, back then, protecting Pretoria from the wrath of the UN General Assembly, assembly, pleading for more time for South Africa to reform, and at the same time, pressing South Africa to reform. This protection was immensely valuable to Pretoria, So, it was unsurprising that Favut would listen when these powers made it plain that the Ravonia accused must not be hanged. And this was a message that, you know, Sir Alec Douglas Hume thought that should be passed on. However, writes Johnson via Anthony Sampson's book, it was quite clear that the trial was fixed and the verdict known in advance. Major General Hendrik van den Berg, there's a name to make people who were alive at during his reign of terror shiver. He was later head of the Bureau for State Security, otherwise known as BOSS, and he told he told the British Embassy in Pretoria that there would not be death sentences and that the prosecutor, Percy Utah, would not ask for them. A week before the verdict was given was given George Bezos, that famous defence lawyer, you know our beloved George Bezos, was told by the British Consul General, Leslie Minford, who was thought to have intelligent links, intelligence links, George, there won't be a death sentence. So there you go. A week before, and you know, reading this book and the various parts in it that R.W. Johnson writes, you You find out that Percy Utah was absolutely astounded when the judge kept kind of asking, "This is Judge Cortas Cortas Devet <laughs> asking him questions which kind was kind of leading Percy Utah away from asking him questions which would force him, the judge, Devet to give the death sentence because he knew he was not going to pronounce death sentences on the Ravonia trialists. Well, I found that fascinating. And now I'm going to tell you quite quickly um, about a funny uh, story. Um, I've marked it here. Let me just see what all these pages are. Oh, this is Harold Strachan, until he died, what, a month Two months ago, times going so fast now. He wrote in um, Nose Week. Um, he was really hilarious. He wrote a column in every, just about every issue of Nose Week, certainly that I read, and um, he he went to visit friends once. In Australia, and when he got back, R.W. Johnson, who was at that stage living in South Africa, like most of us, (laughs) used to say to people who'd gone to Australia, because we imagine everybody's immigrating, you know, to Australia. And on his return, Harold Strachan told me what a nice place Australia was. But, to quote Harold, but finally, rather bland, he said, It was a relief to get back to abnormality. (laughs) Don't you love that? South Africa. Oh, my goodness. And then here's a funny story, and I better end off on this one. A friend of R.W. Johnson's daughter, Margie, was threatened by a rapist. She hired a security guard to watch her house by night a pleasant young Afrikaner called Yanni. After three weeks, Yanni reported having several times heard rustlings in the bushes by night in the garden, but that was all. Margie then told Yanni she couldn't afford to continue to employ him, but he was so concerned for Margie's safety that he came up with a proposal that they used the court record to discover her assailant's address. They knew who he was. He, Yanni, would then go round there and kill the man for a payment of 5,000 rands. Margie said she didn't have 5,000 rands, so Yanni suggested they work out and installment plan ah isn't that south african (laughs) oh my goodness well i've come to the end of the program it's been fabulous chatting to you and i will catch you again next week on reading matters cheers from sue grant marshall you're listening to hit z a